I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. We continue in our study here in the Gospel of John, and specifically in chapter 5, where a couple of weeks ago we were introduced to the healing of the crippled man at Bethesda, and Jesus' instructions for this man to leave the pool of Bethesda, to pick up his mat, and to go home, and him being encountered by the Pharisees who accused him of violating the Sabbath law, and this man who had been healed, placing the blame at the feet of Jesus because he was the one who healed him, is the context for everything that we're looking at in this section of John chapter 5. If you remember from previous discussion, the rabbinic tradition had created 39 different categories of work where you could be found guilty of violating the Sabbath law. It was never the original instruction as given to the nation of Israel. They were to cease from work for one day in order to rest and to worship him. And over the centuries, the rabbis had created such a legalistic explanation of that instruction of keeping the Sabbath day that they made it virtually impossible for anybody to be able to honor and obey. So this is the context for our passage here. And it's Jesus' continuing dialogue with the religious leaders who were so outraged at his audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath day and to tell him to pick up his mat and go home that they were now going to begin, as John would indicate in his writing, persecution of Jesus. And as we know from the other gospel accounts and in our study of John in our own reading, that from this point forward, the Pharisees were really looking for an opportunity to end his life. They saw him as such a blasphemous character that they felt like they needed to rid themselves of him once and for all and as soon as possible. So in our passage, and beginning in verses 17 to 47, is Jesus' dialogue, or monologue, if you will, with the religious leaders, and his defense for healing the man on the Sabbath and for giving instructions to this man to pick up his mat and to travel home is very simply this. I am God. I do not break the Sabbath law. And if there's a problem with my doing what I do on the Sabbath law, it's not what I am doing. It's with the law that you have created. Because after all, they weren't observing the word of the Lord. They were instead honoring the traditions of men. And that's a great distinction for us to keep into our mindset as we think about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Although, as we'll look in our passage today, they were studied men of the word. They did not necessarily understand the truth of what the word actually says. So they created a lot of laws, a lot of difficulty for the people to honor and to follow. And this is really what we need to remember is the traditions of men versus the original teaching of the word. Now, verse 30, we looked at that last week. We'll look at it again very briefly here. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This statement here summarizes what Jesus has already said in the preceding verses, that he is equal to God in his person, he is equal to God in his works, he is equal to God in his power and sovereignty, he's equal to God in his judgment, and he's equal to God in his honor. I'll tell you, that is not something that the Pharisees wanted to hear, nor did they ever expect to hear. And this is really at the height of their um, 
frustration, their aggravation with him is the claims that he's made. Now, in our passage today, in verses 31 and 32, they provide a bit of an introduction to the section that we're going to look at, which is going to be titled, The Witnesses for Christ. So the first thing that we're going to look at here, we're going to divide this up into five different sections, is the need for witnesses. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 31. He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, when you read that, you have to go, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying that his testimony isn't true? In the context here, the word true means admissible as legal evidence. You know, we have English words that mean different things. And same thing with biblical words. They mean different things. So what Jesus is saying is his self-witness is not unreliable. It is not inaccurate. It's an acknowledgement that the Jews needed an external verification for the claims that he has made about himself. So the way that this is phrased in the Greek assumes their need for external verification is false, but that his testimony is actually true. It's very difficult to pull that out of the English rendering, but thankfully the scholars who know the Greek language inside and out can rephrase this in such a way that it's really putting a defense in the face of the Pharisees at the very onset of this part of the passage. Now the need for external verification is false, Because he is God. And because he is God, his testimony is always going to be true and it's always going to be accurate. But for the Jews, and in a legal setting, self-testimony is insufficient. This is a part of what Jesus is doing in this dialogue, is he's going to set apart what would be a legal justification and the actual justification for the things that he has said about himself. Now, in Jesus' day, in a legal setting, self-testimony was not admissible. It required the witness testimony of two or three other people. Now, if you remember, when they arrested Jesus and they brought him for these bogus trials, they corroborated false witnesses to testify against him to verify the false accusations that the religious leaders were making against Jesus. Apart from the external witnesses, the Jews didn't really have a leg to stand on in a legal setting. In our modern court environment, witnesses are called to verify or to deny accusations made against an individual. And witness testimony is often enough to prove the guilt or the innocence of another. So understanding what Jesus is saying when he says that his testimony isn't true in a legal setting, his testimony is not legally admissible, but regardless of that external need for verification, Jesus is going to dismantle their accusations against him through this, this remaining part of our monologue. What Jesus says here in verse 32 is, I have other witnesses. Verse 32 says, There is another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, depending upon the translation that you have, the word he there may or may not be capitalized. In my translation, and in many others, it is capitalized, and what it is referencing here is that the first other witness that Jesus is going to call to his defense as one that can corroborate or verify the claims he has made is the Father himself. Now, we're going to look at that 
in greater detail later on in our passage today. But this is the beginning of the argument or the defense that Jesus makes for himself is that first and foremost, the Father is going to be a witness for me. Now, he's going to identify in the remaining part of the passage four external witnesses for the claims that he has made about himself. And these witnesses are introduced to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is equal with God the Father in every possible way. Now, let me pause just for a second. I've got about 21 or 22 pages of notes here, and we can't possibly get through that in a reasonable amount of time. So this is going to come uh, in two parts. Next week, we'll finish this up. So we're going to read only the first three external witnesses that Jesus is going to call to his defense, the fourth, and then the summarizing defense that Jesus mounts will be what we focus on next week. So let's look together, verses 33 all the way through 38, and that will constitute our focus this morning. Verse 33, you have sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I give is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So these three witnesses that we're going to look at today are going to begin with the witness of John the Baptist. This is who Jesus is referring to in verse 33. You have sent to John... And he has testified to the truth. Now, remember, in our earlier study of John, there's the reference that John was in the beginning with Jesus, pronouncing the arrival of the Messiah. He had a band of followers, and some of those followers, followers at the introduction by John to Jesus, left John and began to follow Jesus as his disciples. John the Baptist was a prophet. His testimony about who Jesus is, is incredibly important because he's not just some guy. He is a prophet. He is the first prophet that has been speaking in the nation of Israel for 400 years at the closure of the Old Testament. They have what is called the intertestamental period, which lasted about 400 years, which is the gap between the last prophet and the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. So John's testimony and John's claims about who Jesus is is incredibly important because he is a prophet. Jesus himself affirmed in Luke chapter 7, verse 26, but what you did... Excuse me, but what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Now, the reason that John the Baptist is more than a prophet is because of the unique role that he and he alone had as the forerunner of the Messiah. So the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was, number one, to prepare Israel for her Messiah. When the Jews heard about the stir that was being created by this guy, remember who he was, he lived in the desert. He was dressed, uh, ate locust and honey and was dressed oddly. This was that character. So they wanted to go out to see who he was. And they asked him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? If you're none of these things, then who are you? And as we saw in the prologue of our passage in John, he says in John 1.23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier that there would be one coming from the desert who would proclaim the coming of the Messiah. This is why John was more than just a prophet. Number two, his purpose was to identify him when he came. John was going to have the unique ability to point out to the nation of Israel exactly who this one is coming as prophesied in the Old Testament. So we would read in John 1, 29 and 30, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John verifies in his testimony of the worthiness of Christ, of the pre-existence of Christ, even though John was born several months earlier. And he and he alone is the unique Lamb of God who has the ability to take away the sins of the world. Number three in John's purpose was to call the people to repentance. Now, this was an offensive call to the nation of Israel, especially the religious leaders who were so self-righteous and who were so self-satisfied that they could never see their own faults or their own sin, but would very quickly and very easily see the sins of other people. Now, in our Gospel of John, he doesn't really spend a lot of time dealing with what John specifically said, but because of the other Gospel accounts, we're able to see some of what John had said to the religious leaders. He said in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, when you're self-righteous, when you think you're all that spiritually, and you hear someone say to you, you need to repent and get right with God, you know there's somebody behind you that they're talking to. You're like, Who, you're talking to me? You're not talking to me, are you? I mean, I got it all together. I don't have any faults. I don't have any failures. I don't have any weaknesses. I observe the law perfectly. Could you ever imagine saying such a thing? Could you ever imagine having such a belief in your own heart spiritually that you had no need for repentance, that when the word of the Lord came to you for the need to repent, you basically let it slip through your ears and said, that's surely not for me. That has to be for somebody else. The Jews The Jewish leadership was offended by this need from John the Baptist to repent. Number four in John's purpose was to denounce the nation's hypocrisy. It was important for the religious leaders and the nation of Israel to see just how far they had strayed away from the teaching of God's Word. They had become so ensnared by the traditions of men that they could no longer discern truth from falsehood, truisms from falsisms, man-made religion and God-instituted religion. And so when John came and began to denounce the hypocrisy of the religious leadership, just as Jesus would do, he quickly became very, very unpopular. We read these words in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is to the religious leadership as he was baptizing the Jews. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. That's a shocking picture image that John has just confronted them with. 
Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John has accused the religious leadership of not being the children of Abraham, and he means that in a spiritual sense, not in an ethnic sense. In a spiritual sense, Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham was a man of commitment. Abraham was a man of faithfulness. Abraham possessed an unwavering commitment to God that was nothing like what the religious leadership exhibited in their spiritual lives. So these were the four purposes that John the Baptist had in his ministry. Now let's continue as we look at verse 34 as Jesus continues this dialogue. He says, But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, as valuable as John the Baptist's message was and the accuracy of his testimony about who Jesus is, Jesus is saying, I didn't need John's testimony, and I didn't necessarily want John's testimony, but his testimony serves a purpose. What I am testifying to you today doesn't come from man, It comes from the very throne of God so that you may be saved. Now what may be lost in a casual reading of that is Jesus' assertion that the religious leadership did not have a relationship with God. They are not the sons of Abraham. They are not the people of faith that they profess themselves to being. If Jesus was concerned about the testimony or the approval of man, then he would not be the Messiah that God has sent, nor would he be the Messiah that people need. And so while John's testimony was important and it was accurate, Jesus didn't need it to verify who he is. But he is giving testimony about himself so that the nation of Israel can be saved. Now, while Jesus doesn't need the testimony of man, Man certainly needs to hear the testimony of John the Baptist because John was directing people to the light. He was directing them to the one that could save them from their sin, the one who could bring to them eternal life, as we've looked at already. The prophets of old always pointed people to the light. And it was not for God's benefit that they did that, but for the people so that they may be saved. You know, it's interesting as you think about the message of John the Baptist and how unpopular he became. And as you look at the Old Testament history of the prophets and how quickly they were denounced and eventually killed. Why? Because the people didn't want to hear the message of the need to repent. They did not want to be confronted with their spiritual hypocrisy. Jesus says in verse 35, still referring to John the Baptist, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus' description of John's ministry was that it was burning. It's an internal zeal for God that drives absolutely every part of his life. Externally, he was a light shining for the people to see. The reality for you and I today is is that if we don't possess an internal zeal, commitment, love, dedication to the Lord, there will not be much light shining from our lives. 
One of the reasons John was so popular was because of this light that emanated from his life that is rooted in his internal zeal or love or commitment to the Lord. When the religious leader sent a delegation out to listen to what he had to say, Jesus said that they only rejoiced in that for a little while because they didn't like the message that he preached. And so they ignored it and they rejected him for that very reason. So in this first witness that we've looked at with John the Baptist, the summary here is very, very simply this. They have rejected the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist. Secondly, the second witness, number three in our outline, is the witness of his works. Jesus says in verse 36, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. As great as John's testimony was about Jesus, and as accurate as that testimony was about Jesus, Jesus says that my testimony is greater for what reason? Because he does the works of his Father. Remember, Jesus has already established that I only do what the Father shows me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only go where the Father tells me to go. And so when Jesus begins to talk about the witness of his works, first and foremost, he's talking about his miracles. He's talking about the countless examples that have demonstrated the power and the authority and the deity that exists within this individual that is standing before them. Now, this dialogue starts, remember, with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, a crippled man who was there for 38 years, and Jesus healed that man, and he became instantly and completely healed. As we've already looked at, he turned the water into wine. He healed the royal official's son from a distance of 20 miles away, and he never even laid an eye on the boy that he healed. If you remember, he called Lazarus from the tomb that he had been in for four days, and out Lazarus walked, still wrapped in his burial clothing. He touched deaf ears so that there's now hearing with crystal clarity. He touched eyes that were blind so that they can see with complete focus. He touched the leper's skin so that it became absolutely pure. As we'll look at in a few weeks, he took a handful of loaves and a couple of fish and he fed thousands and thousands of people. His feet touched the waters of the Sea of Galilee and he walks undisturbed across its waves. He calms the raging storms with the very simple words, Be still. He first and foremost, however, was crucified on the cross in the tomb for three days, conquering sin and death, and he rose from the grave, confirming that he was the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, and that he is equal to God in his person, in his works, in his power, in his sovereignty, in his judgment, and in his honor. The miracles in the life of Jesus confirms that his testimony is true and that he only does what the Father has told him to do. The incomparable Christ, the Son of the living God, is so obvious that to not see it you have to be spiritually blind and that's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were. They were blind. So these miracles attest 
to the accuracy of the claims that Christ has made. They are witnesses to who he is. But let's look at the next part of this. Those who affirmed these miraculous works. It wasn't just the disciples, the faithful few that followed him and confirmed these things to be true. We've already looked at the confirmation from the life of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, very early in the Gospel of John, comes to meet with him by night and makes this startling affirmation in Jesus' ministry. We read this in, in John 3, 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus very early on, and as we looked at when we studied this passage of Scripture, likely did make a profession of faith in his life, had his eyes unblinded by the grace of God and was able to recognize that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be. Secondly, you have the affirmation from the crowds. The masses of people who saw these miracles, some of whom benefited from these miracles, but saw them and heard first-hand testimony of these miraculous works that Jesus had performed. John 7.31, we'll look at this down the road, but many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, which this man has, will he? Now, as we'll look at, this is phrased in such a way as to expect a negative response, and it isn't questioning that this is the man who is going to be the Messiah. It is instead a reverse way of saying this man is the Messiah because nobody can do more than he can do. Now, our third group of affirmation that we're going to look at in the Gospel of John, even further down the road, is in fact the Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees were everywhere. They heard his teaching. They saw his miraculous works. Many would blindly reject out of stubbornness, and some were open enough to at least give consideration to what this man was doing. And so we read in John 11:47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. You remember there was some conflict within the group of the Pharisees that if this man is not of God, he's going to wither away and disappear. But if he is of God, then we're fighting against God. You remember that, right? So there is a group of the Pharisees who are able to confirm the miraculous works that Jesus is performing even though... They themselves are not giving themselves to him, just as many in the crowds, although they affirm the works, were not necessarily all giving themselves to him. So we have the witness of his works. And as the religious leadership looked at and observed the works of Jesus, they rejected them because they weren't ready to give themselves to him. So the next witness that we look at here, the witness of the Father, And this is a a fairly complex section here. There's only a couple of verses, but it's very fascinating what it means when we look at the witness of the Father. Let's read these verses together, 37 and 38. And Jesus says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So when you think about what Jesus has said on the obvious scope of not seeing and not hearing, we would remember at least three occasions where the Father gives 
a verbal or an external affirmation of the Son. At his baptism, remember that? Uh, we heard this, we read this in John 3:17. Behold, a loud voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And although there was a large crowd there, not everybody heard that or understood that. It was apparently only understood by a very small group of people. Nonetheless, there is this verbal and external affirmation of a witness from the Father when he speaks his approval at Jesus' baptism. Second one is the transfiguration. When James and Peter and John go with Jesus up on the hill and the glory of the Lord shines in its fullness and these three men fall to their knees and are absolutely overwhelmed and they see a form appear in front of them talking to Jesus. We read this in in Matthew 17.5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. This is a private affirmation that comes from the Father that verifies who Jesus is because only James and Peter and John are there and it was spoken for their benefit. The third occasion is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we're going to look at down the road here. In John chapter 12, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Also not completely understood by the crowd, although something was heard, not everybody was able to articulate exactly what it is that was said. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about these three occasions where the Father has given an external affirmation or a witness to who he is. What Jesus is talking about is very simply the arrival of the Son or the Messiah. This is the witness of the Father, is in the sending of His Son, which is verified in these miraculous works. It's verified in the testimony of John. It's verified in the teachings of Christ. So the entire revelation of the Father from the very beginning has been preparation for the coming of the Messiah. From the very beginning of Israel's history, when they were brought out of Egypt... There was the long-awaited hope of the coming Deliverer who would once and for all be their God and their King. They have always looked forward in history for the coming of the Messiah. And so rightly understood, this revelation of the Father bears witness to the Father in the sending of the Father's Son who is in fact the Messiah. So the truth is this. It is revealed through a personal relationship with God. i got to mix up in my slides there. The truth of this revelation is in the sending of His Son, and it is revealed through a personal relationship with God. Jesus is talking about the revelation of God to people, and this revelation is only experienced in a relationship with God. Human beings do not generally have direct contact with God through their physical senses, those of hearing and of seeing. And Scripture affirms that no one but the Son has ever seen the Father in His full glory. So there are references to descriptions of hearing and seeing God in the Old Testament. But all of these statements are basically human descriptions of encounters with God by using human sense terms that are foundational to human thought. 
So we articulate our experience with God in a human way that other humans can understand. God is beyond the realm of full human comprehension or physical sensing, but we use human terms in our experiences in our relationship with Him. We've seen the hand of God. We've heard the voice of God. We've seen the works of God. We, we say things like that, right? So there's three things that Jesus says here. There's three indictments that He's going to make against the religious leaderships, and number one is up there. You have not heard His voice. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, we have example after example where the true servants of God heard His voice. And they were able to say, because they heard His voice, voice, thus saith the Lord. Isn't that right? We've read that over and over and over in our reading of the Bible. Thus saith the Lord. Noah heard God speak to him to go and build the ark. Abraham heard God speak to him to go to a land that I will show you. Moses heard the word of God, the voice of God, to go and set his people free. All of the prophets have heard directly from the Lord. They have heard him in a human sense because they were true servants of God. Now, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the true servants of God are able to hear God speaking through the Son because of the relationship they have with God. Now that might seem a little bit difficult for us to piece together, right? So in the Old Testament you had the Father. We understand the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this, this unique thing called the Trinity. But when you have a relationship with God, you are going to have a relationship with the entire Trinity. Even though it hadn't been fully developed and fully revealed at this time, It is still true. If you love God the Father, then you are going to hear the voice of God being spoken through the Son. Today, those who are true servants of God hear the Father speak His Word through the Son and through the pages of Scripture because these words contain the words of God to His people. And when we read them, we should be hearing Him speak and not just looking at words on a paper. When you and I open up our Bibles, we say this is the very Word of God spoken to us from eternity past through these individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit. We say it is infallible, it is inerrant, it guides and directs our lives in every single way. Isn't that right? That's what we say. So when we read the words of God, those who are true servants of God hear the Father speaking through these words on paper. The writer of Hebrews would affirm it like this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. When we read Scripture, we are interacting with the Holy God who spoke them. As true servants of God, when we read His Word, we are hearing God speak to us. Do you hear the voice of God when you read His Word? You see, the true followers, excuse me, the Pharisees are not true followers of God or of Moses, which is what we'll look at eventually. And this is why they don't hear the voice of God that is being spoken through the Son, because they don't have a relationship with God. They are not true descendants of Abraham. So Jesus says, you have not 
heard his voice. Secondly, what Jesus says in this indictment is you have not seen his form. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there were many occasions where the true servants of God saw a manifestation of his form in some way. Jacob saw some kind of an angelic being that he understood to be God. Remember, he wrestled with God. The nation of Israel during the Exodus and in the wilderness saw the manifestation of God in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire. They saw it when the tabernacle was filled. Isaiah saw it when the train of his robe filled the temple. Many others have seen it. They've seen a form of God and those that were the true servants of God during Jesus' ministry were able to see God through the life and the ministry of Jesus' son because of their relationship with him. You see, that is why the Pharisees could see the miracles of Jesus and say, uh, I'm going to reject that. You're doing that from the power of Satan. But they could do that because they didn't have a relationship with God. But those who were true servants of God saw what Jesus did, they heard what Jesus said, and they said, that is coming from the Father. If you remember Simeon, when he received Jesus in the temple on the day of the circumcision, he saw God in that little baby, confirming that this was the consolation of Israel. John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The disciples who followed him for three and a half years saw that he was the Son of God. The masses that would follow him and eventually give their lives to him saw in the form of Jesus God himself. We say we see the hand of God at work all around us. And we're able to see that because we have a relationship with the Father. Do you see God's hand working in your life? Do you see Him working through your circumstances? Do you see Him leading and guiding you through your life? You see, the closer our relationship is with Him, then the more able we will be to see His hand, to see the form of God in our lives. We should be able to see God at work all around us. And although it's not as obvious to us as we would like for it to be, if we are truly giving ourselves to Him, we will see God's hand at work. The Pharisees are not true servants of God because they do not see the form of God that is standing right in front of them, the person of Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. The third indictment that he makes against the Pharisees is that you don't have His Word God's word does not abide in them. You know, Jeremiah ate the word of God, and it was a delight to his heart. The psalmist treasured God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. Ezra studied and meditated and practiced the word so that he would be able to teach others. You see, if we just read the word and don't allow the word to dwell deeply into our hearts. We're guilty like the Pharisees of not allowing His Word to abide in us. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is active, excuse me, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. You see, when you and I open the sacred pages of Scripture, there ought to be such a confrontation to our lives that we recognize that we are in the presence of God through His spoken written Word and it ought to have a dividing work into our life from sin and righteousness. 
from self-rule and submission, from sinfulness and holiness. It divides, it purifies, it's able to bring about our sanctification. The true servants of God heard the word of God in Jesus' day, and they allowed it to direct their lives. They devoted themselves to it so that they could obey God and they could please Him. Today you and I are to understand that the words of Jesus are the bread of life. They provide for us a way to know the Father, a way for us to communicate with the Father, a way for us to know about His love, to know about His forgiveness, to know about our restoration, the vastness of His mercy and His grace. To abide in these truths means that we give ourselves fully to them. The Pharisees are not true servants of God because His Word does not abide in them. There is no dividing work in their lives. They have replaced God's Word for the traditions of men. And this is a recurring indictment of Jesus' ministry against the Pharisees, is that they have neglected the Word of God and instead followed the traditions of men. Now this is where we're going to stop. We have another witness to look at next week, and we'll have the summary of our passage. Why don't you think about this? And the overwhelming witness that we've looked at, just in, in brevity in these 35, 40 minutes, of the testimony of John, the testimony of his works, the testimony of the Father. What about the testimony of your own salvation? What about the testimony of the lives you've seen changed by the love and the grace of God? You see, what God has given to us in our salvation is not something that we're supposed to hoard. It's what we're supposed to share. The greater the work that God has done in our lives, the the more easy, the more obvious it is for us to share those things. But we often get self-absorbed and self-concerned and we forget about the greatness of the grace that God has shown us. You know, God didn't have to allow us to be saved. God didn't have to awaken us from our spiritual slumber and present to us the Son who came to save. But He did. And we have a choice in responding to that. And the way that you and I respond to that is that we become a witness for Christ. It's great to have a holy life. It's great to have a moral life. But it's not enough. We have to speak the words. We have to show them who the Son is. Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Not by good works, not by moral life, not by religion, not by heredity, not by any other means, only through the Son. Faith comes by hearing in hearing the word of God. Father, would you bore deep into our hearts the need to be witnesses for you. Father, I personally confess my failure in that area. I pray that we collectively will confess our failure in that area. You are worthy of our highest praise and our greatest devotion. The lost world around us is dying in its sin. Heck, it's already dead. It's already been judged. 
And you have given to us a wellspring that leads to eternal life. Would you burden our hearts to share the truth of who he is so that others could know what we know? Father, I pray that we would marvel at your goodness in calling us to yourself and allowing the accuracy of the testimony and the witness to Christ to be known by us, to birth in our lives a salvation that promises us an eternity with you. God, we thank you for who you are. We give thanks to you for what it is you continually do in our lives. Father, strengthen and burden us to be witnesses everywhere we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand as we sing. Thank you.